Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we are coming to you during the strike, and so I am not going to be covering anything that's uh, made or has been made by the Struck Studios, but it turns out there's actually a whole bunch of other great media out there that we geeks love and want to talk about. Uh, today we're talking about Discworld, the Terry Pratchett for a series of books that I believe goes to 44 novels uh, that is very... It's kind of hard to describe, and that's why we're doing a whole podcast about it. We're actually going to do multiple podcasts about Discworld, and today we're going to do an introduction to Discworld and focus on the Nightwatch series of books. Whether you've read these or have no idea what I'm talking about, I think there's going to be a lot here for you to enjoy. Don't worry about it. All that more with myself and Rob McKenzie right after this commercial break that I really hope is not from any of the Struck companies. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. I'm joined by frequent guest on both this and the Star Wars podcast, Rob McKenzie, who is waving, which you can't see because this is radio. But uh, Rob, <laughs> how are you doing? And what is Discworld? Uh, doing pretty well. Uh, Discworld is a it's a series of fantasy satire novels that yeah. which sounds like not a big deal. Uh, but Terry Pratchett is one of a very small number of people who has been knighted just for being a writer. Uh, he's a, I, until he passed away, he was the greatest living fantasy author. Uh, you said 44. There's some dispute in that. There's 41 main Discworld books, but there's also mm. a bunch of subsidiary. I've got the Streets of Discworld upstairs. I've got uh, a handful of other random ones. There's been board games and movies and a television show and Amazon show that we don't talk about because it's atrocious. Do not watch The Watch <laughs> on Amazon. It's uh -huh. the worst. Um, but the the series covers a humongous, humongous scope of stuff. Uh, Terry Pratchett wanted to just have kind of a, a play space for for being able to put whatever fantasy stuff he wanted in a big junk drawer. And mm -hmm. so he, he stole the concept of the Discworld from history of a flat earth carried on the back of elephants on the back of a giant turtle. And yep. then he decided that continuity was for suckers. And so, like, the timelines literally do not work in his books. Mm -hmm. uh, it, is, it is actually impossible for the time to all work out. And then because he was so tired of people telling him, well, you broke your own continuity and the timelines don't work out, he wrote the history monks into Discworld. And... The fact that history was shattered, the monks put it back together uh, in order to cover up for the fact that time doesn't make any like continuity doesn't make any sense yeah. uh, because he just didn't want to deal with people. And I think that's important, especially as we're doing introduction, because that's not that's why we're not starting with Discworld book one, because mm -hmm. there really isn't such a thing. The Color yeah. of Magic was the first Discworld book published. But as you said, it is it is very accessible in that if you jump in in the middle of a series, you might have a little bit of difficulty, but even then it's pretty simple. Yeah. But most of the series are – they're intertwined in that they're constantly making references to things. Yep. And so the more you know, the more you know. But they're all kind of standalone. Like yeah. In some ways, as I watch like the MCU and DC and Star Wars try to do these interconnected universes or multi-universes, I think Terry Pratchett in some ways is a pretty good one to look for in part because, as you said – they're not trying to do continuity in the slightest. And yeah. in a lot of ways, for those who have heard me rant about time travel, that's one thing I really like because they're not trying to make it all make logical sense. That's kind yep. of his point. Right. Well, and the, the world has its own kind of internal logic to it, but he's willing to 
he's willing to retcon whatever at any different at different time. He's willing to make things like disappear that he wrote about that he line item into a book and then they they just don't come up and they get moved to somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, he he refused to draw a map for a long time. He refused to have a map. Like fa- that's the classic thing in a fantasy book. You open it up and there's a map inside the front cover, right? right? And he just wouldn't do it. He would have like drawings of the disc world and he'd talk about the the geography, but he was like, "Look, that's going to restrict me." And also yeah. he's it, like it, the he would have a drawing of the disc world with the line you can't map an imagination. Um and then people mm-hmm. got deeply into it and we're like but we really want to know kind of where all these things are geographically relative to each other and so then he finally gave up and and made a map which but it, so one of the things that uh in babylon 5 was commented was like they, they never gave speeds for the movement of ships right right uh because then that would lock them in to to whatever but the the trade-off in in some things is if you explicitly map things out that gives you ideas for uh for continuity for for stories right because if you know that these countries are neighbors then you can have interactions with them as neighbors um and that does lock you in but that's fine that gives you a a point of continuous tension right uh and so yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think that's one of the things that's really appealing about the books especially because and granted, as we've discussed before, I am not as big a fantasy person as you and some others who are in our friend group and have been mm-hmm. on this podcast. And there are some fantasy works, uh, especially some of the stuff by Brandon Sanderson, that I find very inaccessible because it's completely about a world for which I have no reference points. Yes. And one of the things that I really love about Discworld, and I think this is part of what puts it into the sort of parody, satire, humorousness of it, is that on the one hand, this 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 seems to be a kind of medieval world and that, you know, that it is about like truncheons um, who are the very early days of gunpowder in terms of like, you know, uh, whether guns do or don't exist. And that is a, a plot line actually of one of the Nightwatch yep. books. You know, people want a king. There are dragons. And it, it's a lot of the things that are signposts of the medieval world, the fantasy adventure world. And, you know, there's no electricity for the most part, things like that. There's magic. And yet into that world, then, he puts an awful lot of modernness, you know. And so, for example, every time there is a big public gathering uh, in the streets of Ankh-Morpork, which is one of the the big cities and where uh, most of the stories, at least a lot of the stories that I've dealt with, take place. Yep. You'll have a guy basically who's, you know, a modern-day vendor, like, you know, walking around with his cart selling stuff. and. uh, that's probably not the best example because I think you did have those for a couple hundred years ago. But like, um, there's just you know there there are the equivalent of organizers. You know the if you think about like early BlackBerry type things that are just right. they have a devil a little demon inside them instead of like electronics. And there's all kinds of stuff like that in terms of the way they get paid and things like that. They're basically using magic or fantasy to put the things that are in our own world back into the medieval world. Well, yeah, and what he's doing is he's using he's using the fantasy setting to provide some like distance in your head, right? Of like what of the stuff that you do that that seems absolutely normal to you. What happens when you transpose it onto a world where people behave like people, right? They make self-interested right. decisions, they do the things that they do, and you transpose in something like uh it, like the the world getting smaller, right? The right. one of the big themes in later watch books is, and in uh, specifically in making money, 
or not making money, going postal, which is the first Moist Fun Lipic book, is the Clax system, which is a real thing from from uh, the United Kingdom. Before mm-hmm. telegraphs, before electricity, they had semaphore towers that they used to right. send information around. And they he uses that as a, the world is getting smaller. Right, electronic mm-hmm. communications make make us able to send send information back and forth from here to Hawaii to China to to Africa to anywhere instantly. I can I can send an I can send an email uh, like I did today at work. I communicated with somebody from my company's home base in Germany, right, mm-hmm. multiple times instantly, it, it, zero yeah. hesitation. Whereas sending a message to Germany, you know, in the year sixteen hundred would take weeks, right, yeah. at the minimum, and so. You you have this this tightening of the world and the world getting smaller and broader and you getting to see and touch more people and the so it's harder for for bad things or good things or anything that is far away to feel far away right and so the the books it, the books will struggle with that kind of perspective of like why why does it matter to us like on a day to day basis what's happening in Europe. Right. Right. Uh, but nowadays it matters a lot. Right. If yeah. if, you know, there's some some crazy dictator who starts a war in the middle of Europe. Uh, well, that that impacts the whole world for as long mm-hmm. as that war is going on and from and from then on out. Right. Definitely. Yeah. It's a really fun thing that the books do in terms of using kind of pseudo technology and stuff to make it accessible, but also still put it pretty far back in the past. Mm hmm. And so I think a lot of people, like especially if you pick up a book, or you you read some of the passages, a lot of it is is humor, yes. uh, and a lot of it I think can appear silly is the wrong word, but I think you know kind of not fluff. I think is a good word. You know that I think right. it, it is often perceived to be like oh someone is just having fun with this universe. They're making things up. These are good for like a summer read or you know getting yourself to laugh a little bit. And um, they are. They're they're light it, books. Like very much so, very much. Yeah, there's no there there there's no more. I don't think you're ever gonna cry over you know what happens to a character or feel like deep emotional move moved. I disagree. But but well, okay. Well, they're light in terms of like they're short. The writing is easily accessible, and the characters right. and everything feels engaging as opposed to like some yeah. doorstop fantasy novel like we've talked about in the past. Right. Right. Okay. So that so that's a bad example. But yeah. But yeah. The point I'm gathering too though is that I've. So the first question might be, why are we talking about it on a podcast called Superhero Ethics? And I, I know the answer, but I want to throw this to you. To, to those who think, like, these books are fluff, but that's kind of all they are, what, what's your response? Terry Pratchett wrestled, wrestled with the things that make us human. And he yeah. passed these things through a lens of fantasy and a lens of, of satire. But fantasy and satire have always historically been a way to address big problems by abstracting them. Right. Yeah. Uh, a sati- the like great satire authors of the past would set things in weird or strange places to make commentary on the things of their day. If you look right. at uh, like you know famous satirists of the past, Jonathan Swift, Voltaire, they wrote mm-hmm. fantasy pieces. Right. Yeah. Uh, Candide, uh, a, a visit from Sirius, from Voltaire, uh, it, like all, almost anything by Jonathan Swift. They were they were pieces that were set outside of what was was normal in order to right. in order to provide a, a different lens 
on the on issues that were going on. And Terry Pratchett does this specifically. He wants to talk about economics. He wants to talk about slavery. He wants to talk about the rights of people. He wants to talk about the experiences of those who have different views. He wants to talk right. about issues about being trans, about being about having problems fitting into other societies or those societies letting you fit into them. He wants to talk about slavery. He wants to talk about everything. And he'll he'll take a book and he will he will be very bald faced about what he's doing in a given book, yeah. right? He will be he will he's like I'm coming at you with a hammer. We're we're going to talk about slavery this book, feet of clay. Let's go, right? <laughs> and but at the same time, like you said, it's funny. The yeah. the in Men at Arms, which is fundamentally a book about. And we want to specifically talk about guards books. So we're talking about like the second and third guards books, Men at Arms and, and Feet of Clay, and then probably Jingo too, the fourth one. Um, in Men at Arms, there's a very early on, there's a very, very funny exchange with Vimes and Carrot where Vimes, uh, Vimes mentions, you know, the king's the head honcho and, it, and Carrot goes, or the queen. And he goes, okay, fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a hauncherina. And he goes, no, 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 no. I think, that, I think it would be Honchessa. And like, Car- thinks through all the different, like, like versions of like female. De- He's like, no, that would be a young girl. Like it's hauncherina. Uh, and yeah. so it like, and Vimes is like, if I'm just like, everybody does this in Ankh-Morpork and I don't understand why. And it makes like, what, what is wrong with the people in the city? No, Vimes has lived in the city his whole life and he's never left it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's one of the best things that he writes into the books is he kind of makes this joke through the eyes of Vimes, who's the the leader of the Night Watch and then of the City Guard by the uh, as as things move on, and that that's whole very confusing thing. I'm gonna paint with broad mm-hmm. strokes here, but he's a point of view character for a lot of the books, and he makes this comment about how he he's always annoyed by the fact that the people of the city uh, seem genetically disposite. Disp- disposed, in his words, to go off on tangents, which allows yep. the author to go off on tangents all the time. Yep. Uh, and, and we'll get to the Night Watch, but I just want to focus more on this kind of overall thing, because I think it is, you know, the whole idea of this podcast is to take, is to look at the way that the stories that, yeah, you know, often appear as less serious, you know, uh, superheroes and comic books and all these kind of things. And I think that idea that they're less serious is in and of itself deeply flawed, but but that often they have sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, very deep social meaning and very deep social commentary. Yes. And Pratchett, I think, is one who is very explicitly trying to make that commentary. And as you said, like like a like one thing I want to say, but it's hidden under all the comedy and fluff. It's not. It's not hidden at all. It's very unsubtle at times. But it is so wrapped up in comedy and humor that I feel like that the kind of person is like, oh, I don't want politics in my world, is going to very happily read them. Yes. And probably internalize some of the messages. I mean, in terms of like finding that subtle line of teaching people about social justice without letting them know you're teaching them. I think Pratchett's one of the best of all times. He's he's very, very good. He's actually so subtle at it that um, there are a number of people who have tried to co-opt his works as – things that he explicitly didn't stand for. And like his daughter, uh, Rianne Pratchett has had to come in and be like, are you insane? Like, mm-hmm. uh, there are people who are like, Terry Pratchett would be against trans rights. And she's like, have you, have you read monstrous regiment? Have you, mm-hmm. have you it, like, 
have you interacted with any of the characters in the guards books? Like he's, he had, so he'll, he'll be imperfect is the other thing is because he wrote books. The first book was published in 1983 and he, he published them all the way up through uh, 2018, I think. And right. so the, the thing is that, uh, some of his some of his views shifted over time, right? Yeah. But he always tried. And so that he'd always have a dialogue and people would come back and be like, I don't like the stuff that you did in this book or the way that you phrase things or the way that you address stuff. And he'd go, okay, I'll be better. And then his next book would – sometimes he would come back and explicitly hammer something that he had touched in an earlier book. Uh, I think that actually Monstrous Regiment, which is like – which is the 31st book – uh, he goes back and re-hits trans issues in a way that he tried to touch in Men at Arms much, mm-hmm. much more aggressively and directly. Yeah. Um, and that book is wild. A Monstrous Regiment is – there are very few people who present as the gender that they were born as in that book. And it's, oh, ver- awesome. it's very interesting. It's about a bunch of women that sign up to go to war. Like they, they, you know, recruiter comes to town and they all fake being men to, to sign up into this regiment. Yeah. And the, the sergeant leads them through everything. And how, how spoiler do we want to be? Because this book has spoilers are fine, yeah. some spoilers to find the sergeant leads them through war and figures everything out. And the protagonist, the viewpoint character for the whole book, somebody, you know, figures everything out and throws a bundle of socks over the, over the, um, the bathroom stall and is like, you should pack with these, right? Because mm-hmm. people are going to look and see that you, you don't got anything down there. Yeah. And so um, the the character does this, and then f- they, they gradually figure out that every, uh, almost every person in the regiment except for the lieutenant, is is uh, you know born female, right? Mm-hmm. And they they the sergeant they they find out much later also was born female and has been presenting as a male for so long that everyone, including them, considers them a male. Right. And then, but they have like, but the, this, it's, it's an interesting point of like, who, how do people want to present themselves? Right. Right. And it is a whole book of that, of like the, they, they do this big scene where they, um, the sergeant like points out all of the officers when they finally meet all the officers, the, the big general staff. It's like, these people stay in the room. Those people go out. And right. everybody's like, why are you dividing up these people entirely randomly and arbitrary? And they close the door and the, the sergeant's like, all right, all y'all are ones that I sussed out as like, as fake, like as presenting male, but having the board female, every single one of you, there's half of the general staff. Like yeah. what, the, like you can't, you can't put these, these, you can't call these soldiers women. And then. Like you were the ones prosecuting this because they were too out as be, yeah. they, they want to be, they want to present as women in addition to, in addition to have been born a woman. So it's a, like, it's a, it's a great, like he wants to address this issue better because the, it, like it's, it runs underneath all of these. And then people are like, Oh, there's no politics to this. And I'm like, he's angry. He's actively yeah. angry that people are being to people for being trans and wanting to choose their own gender presentation, no matter what it is, no matter how they started. How did you miss this? No, I, I think that's so true. I, I, I would probably describe it as that they were assigned female at birth by I, yeah. I, the, the book yeah, itself. Yeah. But yeah, and that, um, and even to go to the Men at Arms book that you mentioned, that's one that's written much earlier. And in that one, it's not as much that it's specifically about a character who I think we would today say is trans, but one of the main characters is a dwarf. Yep. And the dwarf has a long beard. 
And so to everyone else, they just assume this dwarf is male. And it the is revealed dwarves, at some point. It, it, yeah, the, the dwarves it, actually don't have any public gender presentation except male for every dwarf. Even right. within their society. Yeah. yeah. And but it ends eventually and, and the I don't want to too, too lost in the weeds of the details mm-hmm. of it, but the the what it gets you to is an idea of that the way we humans perceive gender, and I would say actually, you know, Euro-Americans perceive mm-hmm. gender because a lot of other cultures are very different. The, the dwarf doesn't fit, and yeah. and the, the dwarf culture has a fundamentally different understanding of gender. And yep. and I thought that was it was you know I think he was definitely pushing the bounds at the time. Yes, he was doing it as a cisgender person in the eighties or nineties, and to me his reaction when when some people did push back is is the best I think you could imagine. Where he'd be like, oh okay, that's awesome. Tell me more. He didn't get defensive, as far as I understand. From, yeah. from And this is from lots of, like, I've yeah. read interviews with activists who would talk to him. You know, he would just be like, oh, okay, I want to learn more, and then I want to put that into my books. Yes. And here, I think, is where the, the lack of a locked-in – here's where I think the lack of a locked-in continuity really helps him because – I think one of the things that we're seeing with Marvel and with Star Wars and with DC and with some of these other properties is that they are locked into some degree of continuity and they're often trying to make modern versions of characters that were written almost entirely by cishet white men yep. in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Maybe we're Jewish and that often yeah. gives a somewhat different perspective. But, you know, and like I, I think some of them have wrestled with that really well. For example, the uh, – Actually, no, I don't want to mention uh, – I was going to mention a particular TV show, but uh, part of the strike, I don't want to get into those. So I'm not going yep. to mention it, but I think some of them have been done well, some of them haven't. But the, the point being that they're wrestling with it in a way that Terry Pratchett is just like, I don't need to wrestle with it because I can just change it. You know? Right. Well, and p- part of that is actually – because Terry Pratchett has never let anybody else write in Discworld, right? There's right. nobody else. Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett were very, very good friends. They co- collaborated together on Good Omens, which is one of the best pieces of – of fa- of fantasy type writing in this space, mm-hmm. and Terry Pratchett wouldn't let Neil Gaiman touch Discworld, and Neil Gaiman doesn't want to touch Discworld, right? Yeah. And so the the there's no shared universe problem, which is a a problem in these big properties, which is they're so big that one author one person can't manage them all. Right. And so like you have the it, like. You don't have a single unified creative vision, and you don't have one person who can go back and say, "Well, I want to go and rewrite my own history, and I want to retcon whatever." And I like, I don't feel the beholden to anybody else, right? Right. And so, um, and we fight against people like that on these big shared properties. Star Wars, as soon as it turned into a big shared property, you know, in the '90s, mm-hmm. uh, when the when the EU came in, you know, the expanded universe, we, we had the it didn't it fundamentally didn't matter to George Lucas. Now we yeah. can we can say whatever we want about George Lucas as a creator, but he also he felt like Star Star Wars was his creation to do whatever he wanted in the same way. But right. then once it got too big for him, once there were other properties, like it's a shared universe and it's really hard to let other people play in the sandbox when they might have a different different view on things. They might not handle things in the same way. They might not handle things as sensitively or they might handle things more sensitively and blow you away, right? Right. So they they want – and to play in a shared universe sandbox, you need a lot more structure, right? Yeah. You need, a, you need a, a guidebook for exactly how this character behaves because as soon as you hand that character off to somebody else, you want them to be consistent 
in the next property, right? Right. And I think that's a good point. I think that's part of why in a lot of the fandoms now we have people fighting with, with wildly different visions of yep. what we think the original author intended or meant. And I surely don't think that all, all of those views are equal by any means, but that's a topic you've heard me talk about at great length in the past. And so getting back to Pratchett, getting back to Pratchett, let's talk more about like some of the specific issues that he does want to talk about in these books. And I think there are some books that are very specifically like where one individual book or a series of books is about a particular thing. For example, he wrote one book that, that we're going to talk about a bit that is very much a anti-war book that I believe was written or came out around the time of the original Desert Storm uh, and very much kind of a protest about that. Uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly true. It might be, you know, uh, earlier in like in regard to the Falklands or something like that. It, it was published sure exactly. in 1997. So, okay. Yeah. So yeah, so it was after the original Gulf, uh, Gulf war, but while, um, both Britain and the United States still were continuing, you know, warfare and there was still a lot of, uh, it's called Jingo and there was certainly yes. a lot of Jingoism coming out of both oh, yes. England and the United States. And we'll, we'll get to that. But there were, I think, some real overarching themes to uh, Terry Pratchett's work in Discworld. Uh, and I think one of them is best exemplified by something you've been telling me about, uh, Grandma's definition of sin. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Granny Weatherwax is I, – I would argue that Granny Weatherwax is Terry Pratchett's favorite character. She, mm. um, She's angry, which is the description that I've best heard describe Terry Pratchett. He is righteously angry all the time. And that's the way that she operates. And she defines sin. There's a section in uh, Carpe Jugulum where uh, she says, uh, and that's what your holy men discuss, is it? Uh, and the priest that she's talking to says, not usually. There's a very interesting debate raging at the moment on the nature of sin, for example. And she says, and what do they think? Against it, are they? He goes, it's not as simple as that. It's not a black and white issue. There are so many shades of gray. She goes, Nope. Pardon? There's no grays. Only white that's got grubby. I'm surprised you don't know that. And sin, young man, is when you treat people like things, including yourself. That's what sin is. He says it's a lot more complicated than that. No, it ain't. When people say things are a lot more complicated than that, they means they're getting worried that they won't like the truth. People as mm -hmm. things, and that's where it starts. Oh, I'm sure there are worse crimes, but they starts with thinking about people as things. Yeah. And I, I love that because it is it is such a simple, easy explanation of a school of ethical thought that goes yep. back, you know, I mean, I think there are Greek, theolo you know, I, I, I believe there are far earlier, like maybe Greek or, or, or Roman or uh, other philosophers who've come up with simple, similar ideas. Mm -hmm. To me, though, what it rings closest to is Martin Buber, who is a Jewish theolo theologian, uh, German in the 19th century, who wrote uh, I thou versus I it. And the idea being that like a good relationship is when I, I see you as thou, as the uh, other, an mm -hmm. other person that I relate to versus that when I start seeing other people as it, as things, you know, this is the person who sells me my groceries. All I know is the way that they interact comes into my life. He wrote, you know, an entire book on this and many, many books on it. And people have written, you know, libraries about these theological ideas and, and philosophical ideas. And Grandma Weatherworks, uh, Granny Weatherwax, Weatherwax. Yeah. Granny Weatherwax 
comes up with a whole idea in just a few sentences. Yes. Treat people as people, not as things. Yes. And that's that's kind of the the big arc of all of of the Nightwatch books, uh, because the one of the things about the Nightwatch books is they are they're about Vimes running a growing police force, right? Mm-hmm. And the, w- they're growing because Ankh-Morpork has opened its doors to the peoples of the world. Uh, Lord Vetinari has decided that anybody can move to Ankh-Morpork. He's not going to discriminate. They have money. He likes money. Right? Mm-hmm. And what that means is that everyone does move to Ankh-Morpork. Dwarves and trolls hate each other. Uh, they, there are gnomes, which are very tiny. There are gargoyles, which are, which are kind of a species of troll that live in the, in the tops of buildings. Mm-hmm. There's vampires and werewolves and ghouls and banshees that all move to Ankh-Morpork. And one of the, one of the big things is, well, if you have a civic group that is public facing, you got to hire people like we would call them diversity hires or affirmative action hires now. But mm-hmm. in reality, like the the night watch is just this big melting pot of all these different people right yeah and they have to struggle over and over again with what is their definition of a person right and they they start by folding in trolls and dwarves and and a werewolf right a troll a dwarf Mm -hmm. and a werewolf are the are the diversity hires at the very minimal night watch and by the end they're running into so they've hired a golem well golems aren't alive are they Mm-hmm. And then later on, they they have to deal with the fact that there are goblins that everyone hates and orcs that everyone hates. What about the villain races? Right. You can yeah. deal with dwarves. Like if you're in a fantasy setting, everybody wants to play a dwarf. Mm-hmm. But like the uh, all these these evil species. Right. Are they are, are they people, too? <laughs> and. Yeah, and- yeah. Of course, through the course of the books, it turns out like in a, an undead zombie winds up joining in. Oh, yeah. Know, there's joining, the, yeah. The, there are vampires that, you know, play a part in the city. And yeah, well, it, they, they do hire a vampire to the watch eventually, even though Vimes hates it. He hates it to death. Yeah, he's so he's so <laughs> against it. But finally, enough pressure gets put on him where he's like, fine, we'll probationarily hire this vampire. And when they do something, when they do anything to screw up, I will kick them out. So they can't make any mistakes, which is a very, very much a thing for diversity hiring in workplaces. You have to be better, right? Yeah. Women have to be significantly better than men in a lot of hiring situations. And that's deeply unfair. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I want to touch more on that in a minute. But I wanted to pull back first to this idea of teaching people, treating people as things because he, like Boober, he – they, he definitely means like when you actually see other sentient beings and you don't see them as people. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also means it in a much more expansive way, like Buber does, and like uh, you know others of the mm-hmm. school of thought, where part of the idea is it's also talking about you know if you see people as if you see like lower classes as just there to you know die for you or to buy your stuff or to you know somehow advance your agenda because you see them as lesser than you are. It, it It's basically the idea of if you see a person only through the lens of how they are valuable to you, that's when you've crossed this line into seeing them as a thing. Uh, instead of seeing their, their full, uh, I want to say humanity, but that's the whole point. It's not just humans. Their full personhood, yeah. their full uh, sentience-ness or whatever it is. Yeah. And so there's, there's a bit in Feet of Clay where um, the whole book is kicked off by 
deaths of some fairly unregarded people, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's an old priest that nobody really cares about, and a guy that runs a museum for dwarf bread. And then later on, they discover that two more people died as a consequence of, of some poisoning from the same source. And mm-hmm. they, these people are just like, she's a, she takes in mending and does seamstress mending, and it's a, and her grandkid died as a result and then then carrot goes and he he tells one of the villains he's like these people died and he goes well were they important Mm. and carrot goes you know i almost felt sorry for you up to that point i i really like you got dragged into the situation you didn't have total control over it kind of ran you over and i almost felt sorry for you (laughs) yeah (laughs) and he goes i'm glad that commander vimes didn't get to hear this <laughs> because vime like vimes will not stand for that um mm-hmm. and that's his his overriding thing is he vimes is a very weird uh a very weird aspect because he's basically the avatar of law right he yeah. wants law and order but not law and order in the sense that most like most laws are shaped by society by people with power yeah. He hates people with power. I, I I would even say that he's he's an avatar of justice rather than law. In that he, he sees the law often as things that are created yes. by people with power and that when the people in power want him – one of the constant tensions of the book is that he very rarely is willing to be the enforcer of uh, the government uh, and, and to the point where – uh, the patrician, who's the person who rules the city, and he's, mm-hmm. he's a great character in, in himself, yes. he has learned that the best way to get Vimes to do something is to order him not to do it. Oh, yes, for um, sure. <laughs> which has become uh, just a wonderful ongoing theme throughout the books. Yeah, he t- tells Vimes, you uh, you know, you always used to have an anti-authoritarian streak. And it's very interesting that you've kept that despite becoming an authority. Yeah. It's very zen of you. And uh, the, <laughs> Vimes goes, sir. <laughs> not a question not like <laughs> just <laughs> mm-hmm. i i acknowledge what you're saying yeah uh, and i think that's a great way to to jump into let's start talking about the night watch books themselves because they're a very interesting set of books and as you said they're they, they grow expansive as the books go on in part because the group that they're about because it's expansive because it's originally about the night watch who are you know, the people who literally are just supposed to, like, walk around the city and ring their bell and say all is well or ring their bell if there's a problem. And they're mostly ignored. Yes. And, they're, the, and, they're the dregs, right? Exactly. And and one of the things that kind of – and Vimes is left in con- control when his higher-up, the person who trained him and he really sees as a mentor and almost a father figure, dies and no one goes to the funeral except other guards. And – he kind of like gets it in his mind that he should start thinking more about what matters and, and that the guards can do things and winds up surprising the city when all of a sudden they're actually trying to like solve crimes and, and prevent bad things from happening and punish when when, you know, figure out what happened when bad things did happen. And and the city kind of doesn't know what to do with him because they're not used to someone actually caring, especially right. if it's the rich and powerful who do bad things. Right. And and Vetinari, the patrician, has set up the city so that the watch is an appendix. It's it, like it's going to get stepped, stood down at the end of Men at Arms right. uh, because it doesn't do anything. The, the way that you prevent crime, Vetinari says that if we're going to have crime, and we will, it should be organized. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so – 
Yeah, there's a thieves guild. Right. And so what the Thieves Guild have is a license given by the city, given by the government that they pay for to, in, to that allows them to steal from people. And what they do is they say, well, it's a lot of work to go and steal from people, though. So they go to they go to businesses and they go, here's the deal. You buy a license from you buy a Thieves Guild protection from us and you put it up as a sign and then we don't steal from you. You pay up with the Thieves Guild every year, and there will be no licensed thievery. If there's unlicensed thievery, give us a call, and we have a we take a very dim view of scabs. Right. <laughs> and by a very dim view, they are they are brutally lethal at <laughs> at removing yes. thieves. And so, if theft isn't something the watch cares about. Right. It, it, the answer is you turn them over to the thieves guild and let them sort it out. You know what? Right. You don't really have street crime when uh, when you have people that enforce it. They've created a watch incidentally via basically an insurance structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the watch is basically there for murders and to keep the peace, which is a very nebulous term. Right. And, and, and yeah, I mean, when he when he tries trying to get the watch to do more, the first people has to convince is the other watch people. And, yeah. and 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 then it kind of mushrooms, and he he takes over the day watch. First, there's a rivalry there. They're just the watch in general now, and more and more guards come in, and it, that's a good place to start. What I think is kind of one of the most interesting questions about the Night Watch is, and, and again, here these are books that start getting written in the 1980s. I think a lot of the Night Watch books specifically are written in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And he dies in, as you said, the late 2010s. Um, BLM was, I think, just getting started at the time he passes away. ACAB was not a phrase that was being used, but is being used obviously much more today. Although mm-hmm. certainly, you know, concerns about police brutality were a thing in most of his books. Here's the way I would I, – I think that some people today would be like, oh, I don't want to read any books about police because of ACAB. And I think that's a very fair perspective, and I'm not trying to push anyone out of it. I would say that with these books, there's two things going on. I'm curious if you would agree. One is that, you know, that I think one of the big problems that many of us would have with police is that, uh, I think one, the, the, the distillation of it is that the police are there to enforce not justice, but the law. And the law is handed down through these oligarchical, you know, the rich are basically in control kind of political systems that mm-hmm. most of us live under to one, you know, just with, with varying amounts of how expressly oppressive it is. But, you know, I think even in this country, we we see that all the time with the police. There's an extent to which in the Night Watch world, that's not the case. It They want it to be. And he's – let me just say both yeah, of these yeah. things and then – Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm just letting and, you know that I have stuff. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it certainly is to some extent, and, and that over the course of the books, Vimes is trying to get out from under that idea and make it into something very different. Because it's not police as it is in our world. It's the watch. Uh, but the second part of it is that I think that if Pratchett had lived another 10 years and people had gone to him and said, hey, you know, we're thinking a lot more about police brutality and we're thinking a lot more about the idea that police fundamentally as an institution are – problematic and all the ideas of ACAB, I think Pratchett would have responded in exactly the way he did with the other stuff and been like, yeah, you're probably right. Let me let me see how I can write this in, in different ways or or be more aware of that or whatever it is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but you also have to take it from the perspective of Terry Pratchett is from the UK. He's a British right. author. And so he is going to write about the way that policing is handled in Britain. And right. they actually have a thing, appeals principles of policing, policing by consent. They, most right. of them don't carry guns, 
and the policing is there. They, they've set up this set of principles. Peel set up these set of principles of like police are there to serve the people, right? The public, right. they keep the peace. And so when you compare the way that policing is done in the UK to the way it's done in the United States, it's very different. We have a militarized right. police system and they, they oftentimes will treat, um, they will oftentimes treat the, the public as their enemies. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that having an aspirational group, how police, how you want it to be is good. Right. Because that forces people to confront how they're different. Um, Like you could call it in the United States. Like there are very funny police shows. Right. Uh, Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a show that is about a fictional police department. It is very funny. Right. But it is fundamentally about a different thing than than the watch, because American policing is very different than British police. Yeah. Right. And so he, yeah, he probably would have had a book where he has police from a different place that behave Mm -hmm. very differently towards their people and like compare and contrast it and say, look, yes, I agree. The cops there are bastards, right? Yeah. Like you should probably, you should probably be better. Um, And and to be clear, I, I do think it's worth pointing out. There is quite a lot of police brutality and racism in the British policing system. It is yes. very different, I think, in much less ways. And unlike here, where policing was literally born out of slave catching, yes. like it, England has a very different history with it. Yes. Uh, so I just want to be careful that we're not romanticizing the UK police system I, I'm not. too much. I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm, yeah, I'm just drawing the lens that like his view yeah, of policing so. is, is based on a completely different philosophy of policing than the United States policing. Like yeah. you're saying, they came came from entirely different starts and places and they, they've – they're converging a little bit but not like – I think that just the, just the arming of police, that difference alone, right, that like – Seven uh, only seven percent of officers in Britain even carry a weapon, right. or carry a gun. They they might carry a truncheon or a nightstick or or yeah. pepper spray or whatever. But ninety three percent of them don't carry any kind of lethal f- weapon on them. And right. so when you when you look at it from that lens of like he's looking at police as they aren't an armed militarized force, like mm. that that changes the game, right? Even yeah. even if the police there are senses, right? Yeah. They aren't. With guns, you don't have to be afraid for your life. You just have to be afraid that they're going to be bully you. Uh, family-friendly podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> we'll just have a lot of beeps right there, but that's fine. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think you're right, though. And I think that's an important thing. And I think, you know, because I think, I think it's important to understand that he starts from a different place. And like, even something like Brooklyn Nine Nine, I think, mm-hmm. I think there's an argument to be made that it is still presenting the idea that American police could be made better. Yes. And I think a lot of us are on the side of it kind of has to be torn down and started over. I, yeah. I think you make good points that in England it is a fairly different thing and also that's being read right way back in history. And and, and yeah, to me, to, to me, I think I'd start with a place of it, it comes from a very different place, but also that the – I want to be very careful. It's not to say that like, oh, we all just discovered racism in the police when Black Lives Matter got started – is obviously incorrect. I think it's yeah. when a lot more white people started to pay attention to it. Yep. But there's been racism in policing, as we said, since policing started. Um, but I do think that as poor people approached Pratchett, he would have definitely put that more into his books. Yeah, he, cer- um, he certainly would have. Yeah. So let's talk more about some of the specific characters, because uh, I think that's also where we start to really get into some of the points that he's making through these characters and through these stories. And let's talk about uh, uh, Vimes and Carrot uh, as the two yes. kind of 
because uh, I think they, they present a very interesting dichotomy between the two of them, and each one of them has a lot of rhetorical power in the way that uh, Terry Pratchett uses them to, t- to make points. So tell us a little bit about Vimes and about Carrot. Yes. Uh, so Vimes is, and especially in the, in the first few watchbooks, he's a pastiche of the of hero cops, right? He is Dirty Harry. He is yeah. he's a tough, you know, no nonsense street brawling thug with a heart of gold that is that is fine with breaking the rules to do the right thing, which mm-hmm. is from a from a structural perspective, this is getting into police problems, right? Because this is saying that the rules bind the police officers and you shouldn't follow them if you're, you know, in hot pursuit and that gives them a yeah. lot of license to do whatever. Uh, so that like but that's what he does. Uh, Carrot, on the other hand, is newcomer to the city, and he's idealistic. He is a, a, a simple person, but that doesn't mean stupid, is the, right. the line that they use. He moves in straight lines when everyone else moves in circles. Mm-hmm. And he is the, uh, like, they make a big deal about it in several books. He is the uncrowned uh, king of Ankh-Morpork, right? Yeah. And... Uh, it, his his girlfriend Angua makes the point. He it, she's a werewolf and she can see it that he moves through the city like like a tiger moves through the jungle, right? Mm-hmm. He wears it like a skin and it it's his natural environment. That he had this charismatic talent. He's ra- he was raised by dwarves as a as an orphan, and yeah. so he comes to the city and he has the, in a dwarf mine. You only meet a hundred people in your whole life, right? All the people living in this mine, all the dwarves mm-hmm. there. In the city, you'll meet a million. And he has this this charismatic talent that expands out to fill the whole city. He knows everybody, and everybody likes him. And nobody likes Vimes. But Vimes is in charge. Vimes is the commander. Vimes is Carrot's boss. Yeah. And Carrot is very clear about that. Like, that he's got a boss. And that if his boss tells him no, well, that that's it. That's the that's the line. That's the end, right? Right. Because because Carrot, I think I think one thing that's really important about him, he starts out very much the avatar of law because yeah, but not because he, not not because he thinks the nobles are right and have this divine right to set the law. It's because he's never thought about it, and so yeah. he just thinks the the law is good. Yep. And so on his first day, and uh, his first day as a member of the Watch, he goes and tries to arrest the entire thieves guild. Yep, and has to kind of learn that's not how it works. Yep, but it, he translates into this very interesting character, and I want to talk about a couple aspects of him. And the first thing is, I think he often gets to be the avatar for the audience about this idea of expanding our nature of people, because. Yes. He is fundamentally good-hearted, but he's fundamentally learned the prejudices of the people he grew up with, not because they're like particularly hateful people, but just because they live in a mine and they don't know much about other people. Yep. And so in an interesting scene early in the book that um, Angua, his eventual girlfriend, is introduced, she is a – and again, I love that you use the term diversity higher because I think that's kind of – he's kind of – He's not making fun of affirmative action by any means. He's making fun of the people who think affirmative action is just diversity hires. Yes. When actually it's people who have different skill sets and different yes. perspectives that are needed. But in that book, they keep saying that Angua is a diversity hire because – and they start the word with a W and, and then it gets cut off. off. Yes. And so the joke is that everyone thinks she's a hire because she's a woman. 
And there's some question as to did they actually know she was a diversity hire because she was a werewolf or what it is. Well, it's it's spelled out Vimes knows, but Carrot doesn't. Right. And, and, and most of the yeah. rest of the, the crew doesn't. And yeah. so he doesn't know she's a werewolf. He finds out that she's staying in a place that is full of the folks who are genuinely not liked, like werewolves and zombies and vampires yep. and things like this. And he's very worried for her. And you see her, like, having been kind of into this guy, maybe wanting to flirt with him, but then really kind of, like, souring on him when she sees he has these prejudices. Yep. Except that, like, he is the perfect example of the person who, when presented with new information, will immediately drop his his prejudgments, uh, which prejudices, that's where the word comes from, prejudging. Yeah. And it, to but- me, he... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say he, but but he still snap reacts until he's until he's rewired himself. When he yeah. first finds out, when she first changes in the moonlight, he turns around and sees that she's a werewolf, and he draws a sword because he thinks it, it, uh, she's the 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 door is closed. She's been in the room with him. She's the only person there, and so like, but he goes, oh, it's a wolf. I should be. I should fight. I right. should be afraid. And so he has to rewire himself, but he yeah. does by the end of that book. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's what makes. And I think it seems very intentional to me that Carrot is the avatar for those things because part of what they're saying is that even the best of us, even yes. the most morally pure, utterly innocent, can still have these prejudgments. Yep. And it, he's so he. And I think the whole point is that Carrot isn't like. It's saying that like. It's okay that Carrot has that first reaction. It's not great, and it's better if you don't. But to have that reaction at first makes sense, given how Carrot is raised. The question then becomes, when you're presented with the evidence, what do you do? Because I think that's the thing that's so frustrating and has been throughout history is when you start with preconceived notions about another gender or another race or another religion or another you know, gender yeah. identity or any of these things, are you able to say, oh – well, actually, I met this person, and they're kind of awesome. So maybe my views about the group that they're from, I should change. Or are you going to say, oh, well, now that I know this about that person, everything I experienced about them must be wrong. Or, oh, well, they're one of the good ones, so they're okay, but everyone else in their group is still bad. Yeah. And it's a fantastic allegory about like the fundamental basis of prejudice. And it, it really is, I think, one of the best books – a uh, series of books, I think all of Discworld is, about what we do when we confront something that's different and how right. do we get past our innate you know, desire to judge the different as bad or as dangerous or anything right. like that. And that judging the different as bad and dangerous, Angua, who's a werewolf, deals with all the time because other watch members know about this. So like when, when Feet of Clay comes around and she has to deal with the fact that everyone carries a little bit of silver on them. Yeah. Except for Carrot. Carrot has decided she's safe, and so she's safe. Like, he couldn't – like, he's probably the one person who probably could successfully fight her because he's – like, A, she would pull her punches, and B, he's tough as hell. So if Mm -hmm. he had silver, he would would actually be a real threat. And the – everybody else, even even people who are her best friends who like her and work with her every day, carry a little bit of silver just, you know, just in case on them, which is – she and everybody's just a tiny little bit fearful of her and she senses this all the time and it is this wild like 
allegory for racial tension that mm-hmm. like it, you wouldn't realize if you aren't thinking about it that way right it's just like yeah. oh yeah of course people are going to be tense she can turn into a wolf and tear out your jug- jugular vein right like of course you're going to be a little bit afraid and it's like yeah but anybody could do that like yeah. <laughs> so like anybody could it could hurt or kill you why are you so so picky about it being a werewolf right yeah i, I think it's that second point especially because when when people look at like a werewolf or a zombie uh, or like the X-Men as a uh, metaphor for something like racism or anti-religious bias or any of the like, it always falls apart a little bit because the fundamental thing is that like no one race is actually different in terms of like their aggression right. or their propensity to violence than any other part of humanity. Yeah. Werewolves or X-Men, like, you know, like an X-Men does have the ability to melt me with his laser eyes or something yeah. like that. So it's not a perfect analogy. But as you said, I think that they go – part of what he goes to is a werewolf looks scary. But the reality is that any person can attack you with a weapon right. of any kind or anything like that. You yeah. know? Werewolves it, just happen to have their weapons in their mouth yeah. instead of it, in their it, hands. Yeah. In the United States, like – we have more guns than people here, right? So, right. like, statistically, you will meet people with guns over the course of the day if you go out in public. Just the, yeah. the nature of the United States, right? Um, and are you going to say that, you know, these people are inherently scary or dangerous just because they happen to have access to a lethal weapon? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that I'm concerned that the lethal weapon's out there. But, like, mm-hmm. I think that this is a, a, a lesson that, like, I could I, probably I would... take to heart more. Yeah, I would actually argue that it is like not only just my gut feeling, but I believe the statistics do demonstrate that, you know, because we all have those moments of I wish I could hit someone right now. But if you don't have a gun with you, it passes. If you have right. a gun, you often use it. But right. that, that's a whole debate not to get into. But, but, I, I but, get the, your, but the thing is that you point, shouldn't yeah. be you shouldn't just be automatically always afraid of people, I think would be my my line, because in the United mm-hmm. States, it's possible they might have a gun. Concealed carry is legal in many places, right? And so, they, like, they could just have a gun. And so, you, but you shouldn't, by default, be afraid of them. Like, I would like fewer guns in the streets. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. I think that cops shouldn't have guns. I think that we should have fewer guns. But, yeah. but the gun isn't the thing that I that the gun the gun is a tool. It's just a powerful tool. Her her right. jaws are a powerful tool. She has them all the time. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the person behind it is what's is, is the thing that's important. I believe is Terry Pratchett's point. Yeah, I think I I still disagree with you on the gun part, but I definitely get your main point. I think that's 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 the more important thing there. And just to continue on with Carrot, I think the other thing that he does that is so interesting, and again, it's kind of Pratchett pushing on the way the way again that we can fall into these mental boxes is he's the perfect example of the character who. You know, when everyone knows, oh, no one would ever try this harebrained solution to something because we're all too smart to do that. Mm-hmm. He's not too smart to do that, which in many ways often means he's the smartest there because he's willing to – He it's not even that he's not too smart. It's that he has never gone through the thinking that says, oh, why would you do this? And yeah. so plus he he – he has such a magnetic effect on people that there are times when he goes into a huge mob or two mobs that are about to have a, a street riot and just tells them to go home and be better. And they yeah. all do because they all just yeah. – they don't even understand why, but they all want to listen to him. Yeah, they're like, well, he's he's earnest about it, right? When yeah. They have this discussion where like Nobby and, and Colin, who are the, the comic relief guards, are like, so we could go out there. They're about to start a riot. What would Captain? What would Carrot do? And they're like, well, he'd go out there and tell him to 
to shut up and be better people, like you're saying. And they're like, what well, that happened to us? And they're like, well, we'd, we'd find our heads in the, like, it's separate from our bodies in the gutter. They're not going to stand for this crap. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it, because the world is simple to him, right? We could just be better people. You can make this yeah. choice, he says. Why wouldn't you make this choice to be a better person? And they're like, I, because this, you know, ethnic group is is my enemy. Uh, this this other the, we're we're against the species. Trolls and dwarves have always fought. And he's like, yeah, but you don't have to. Like this is a choice. Yeah, <laughs> Cho- choose better, choose different. And uh, like I said, he moves in straight lines where everybody else thinks in a like mm-hmm. they want to get to this point and they have to go through something else to get there. He just goes directly to the point. Yeah, and it's. Uh, he and Vimes are the they, – they both will accept largely anyone into the watch, and they accept people as people for, for very different reasons, mm-hmm. right? He believes in people. Carrot, Carrot is idealistic. He believes in people. He believes that you can choose better. You can choose to be good. Vimes is a misanthrope. He believes that everybody is terrible. Right. Right. And so so when, when he gets – like, they're like, well, why are you uh, – what's the quote? Um – there were uh, Vimes closed his eyes and thought about cigar smoke and flowing drink and laconic voices. There were people who'd steal money from people. Fair enough. That was just theft. But there were people who, with one easy word, would steal the humanity from people. That was something else. Yeah. The point was, well, he didn't like dwarfs and trolls. But he didn't like anyone very much. The point was that he <laughs> yeah. moved in their company every day. And he had a right to dislike them. The point was that yeah. no fat idiot had the right to say things like that because somebody had literally just dismissed the humanity of all the dwarves and trolls that he worked right. with. It called them technically the same things that Vimes calls them, but Vimes will tell that to them to their face and then work with them. Right? This right. person won't even go go near them. He's a noble person just dismissing them out of hand. Yeah, and, and I think it's part of why Vimes and Carrot work so well together and why they have so much respect for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and and why Carrot will always listen to Vimes even though Vimes is his polar opposite. And Vimes learns that he can use Carrot uh, for things that he could never do or no one else in the watch could do. And one thing I think that I love most about Carrot, and it plays very much into what you're saying there about stealing the humanity, is that because Carrot always sees the humanity in others, the the personhood in others, you know, one of the things that happens is he gives people a chance to do better. Yes. Uh, And, you know, in... In shows that are about, you know, cops and criminals or people who are doing bad things, you know, it's almost a trope now, but I think there's some great examples to it. Loki is a great example, but also, you know, in The Wire, you get this a lot of people Mm -hmm. who sort of say, well, you all expected me to be a villain, so I am a villain. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the – that's the thing that Carrot subverts is when Carrot goes to – uh, you know, a bunch of uh, the kind of street kids who are in gangs and are going to get into a, a big fight and says, let's play soccer instead, yeah. or football in their world instead. Yeah. You know, it, 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 is obvi- it is satire. It is not meant to be this is a real thing that could happen. But it is an allegory for what does happen in, in soccer leagues like that mm-hmm. or, you know, sports leagues or anything where you say, hey, look, the whole rest of the world looks at you as a street kid who's never going to be anything but a criminal and a menace. Mm-hmm. What if I look at you as someone who could be academic, who could be an athlete? You know, what if I don't look at you through that lens and help you not to look at yourself through it? And and that's right. that's what Carrot does again and again and again. Yeah, and that's his. That's it, like the whole arc of Feet of Clay. Feet of Clay is about are golems tools or are they people? Right. Yeah. And. But- 
Carrot sees exactly Let's, that. He sees the golems as people where nobody else does. Let's talk about uh, – because, again, this, is, this has already gone on for a while and yeah. um, we've referenced some of the books. Let's talk about two of the specific books as we kind of wrap up, mm-hmm. Jingo and Feet of Clay. Let's talk about Feet of Clay yeah. first. What's the – give the like 30-second version of the plot of, the, of Feet of Clay and what it's, what it's trying to say. Uh, the, the, a group of golems want to be free. They want uh, – the, when they say what they want, they want respite. They want the ability to not be a hammer sometimes. Yeah. And the, so they're treated as tools and everyone treats them as tools. They and, want, and just to back yeah. up here, yeah. the golems are um, – there, there are no Jews in this world. Yes. But it's very much the Jewish myth yes. of the golem yep. of clay that has been fashioned and then magic scrolls have been put into the head of the golem, which activate it. But it, it is yes. basically a robot – but a sentient one, yes, and one that, as we learned, yeah, and that's kind of the yeah. point is that it it is sentient in a way that its owners and masters don't want to think of it as such. Yes, and golems must have a master is one of the rules in their camp in the in the words that are placed in their head to activate them, right. and so uh, they 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 make a master golem they and the master golem starts going mad and they have to figure the the watch has to figure this out and figure out exactly what's going on with a big complicated plot against the patrician and all this but the the big payoff is uh carrot buys dorful the golem from someone takes the receipt and places it in dorful's head and the receipt says the bearer of this owns this golem Mm. he takes it and places it with the chem in dorful's head and now Dwarfel is free. He owns himself. The bearer of this receipt owns this golem. And the question that they ask over and over is, is the golem a tool or is it a person? And they say that golem killed someone. And they say that, that golem cannot be a tool. Tools are not responsible for how they're used. If you hit someone with the head in the hammer, oh, in the head with a hammer, the hammer is not put on trial. If right. you order a golem to kill someone, the golem should not be destroyed for that, you may, because the golem can't choose not to do it. Mm-hmm. And they point this out over and over that the golems are being—they have a double standard. They look like people, so they're treated like people, except when it's convenient to not treat them like people. Right. And so it's a book about treating someone it, like uh, it, like Vetnari says it, near the end: "You must destroy the golem Dorful that you know is looking at joining the watch." And Vimes goes, "Absolutely not." And Vetnari mm-hmm. goes. I, I believe that I gave you an order. And Vimes goes, he thinks he's alive, and that's good enough for me. Yeah. And it is such a just like encapsulation of the, the they think this, this, whatever, thinks they're alive. They think they're a person. Therefore, we have to treat them as such because yeah. we have to trust the internal experiences of people. And this is, I think, the brilliance of, of what he's doing in the Discworld novels is – this is very clearly a commentary on actual human slavery. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly a commentary on wage slavery and the idea of like, you know, the factory owner who sees the people who work for them as just, you know, machines. And yep. and I think that's, you know, look at the strike that's happening right now, uh, both with, you know, the the actors, the writers, but also the Starbucks, the Amazon strikes, all of those things. Yep. It's also a commentary on science fiction. You know, yes. the golem is data being put on trial for mm-hmm. does he is he owned by the federation or yes. does he own himself it is every robotic story that you and i have talked about frequently of yes. does ai have its own sentience and thus does it exist as a person in a society or is it just a tool yeah 
and then the the golems show up later because Dorfel makes the point near the end of the book. He's like, you'll hire me as a watchman. And Vimes goes, really? And Dorfel goes, and you'll pay me twice as much as anyone else. I don't sleep. I don't rest. I'm a bargain yeah. at double the price. And, and Vimes <laughs> goes, well, what do you want to do with money? You, like, you don't own clothes. What, yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, if you're going to work all the time, what are you going to do with the money? He goes, I will save up and I will buy the golem clutes from the pickle factory. And then he and I yeah. will save up. And Vimes goes, really? And it, and the, the line later, the Golem Trust, which is the, the like limited liability corporation the golems make to buy golems. Their motto is, by our own hand or by no hand. Yeah. Right. Which is also, like, if you've ever heard the terms white saviorism mm-hmm. or anything like that, the idea yes. that, like, it, you know, those of us who are in overclasses can help the people who are fighting mm-hmm. oppression. You know, I mean... All of us, I think, are oppressed in some ways, but like yes. we're looking at something, you know, for example, a white person, I can help the fight against racism, but it's going to be need to be led by people of color. And I need yeah. to listen to them, what they're trying to do. And it's just such a – that by our hand alone, I mean, that, that's been quoted by all sorts of movements throughout history, yes. you know, saying like, we don't want to be saved by someone else. We need to do the work ourselves and we want you to help and get the hell out of the yes. way. Yeah. We want – you know, we have to be – or you can't empower you. No one can empower someone else. You know. Yes. Not like, in true sense. It, 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 like you can't actually give somebody freedom. All you can do is take it away, right? Right. Uh, and so you can you can say you know we talk about freeing the slaves. It, yes. Uh, like they 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 were they were freed, but in reality, they there's there's a way to phrase this right because I, the, their freedom I, is inherent in what they are. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think yeah. the idea is that like I can't give someone freedom. I can just stop taking away their freedom. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. That's a good way to. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then and then you know and then we can do a hell of a lot to help them as they move. Right. Yeah. But yeah. 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 That, yeah. Um, so that's Feet of Clay. Let's talk about Jingo for a bit, and then we're going to finish up with something that a lot of people who know Discworld and the Night Watch are probably wondering why in the world we haven't talked about the Vimes uh, economic theory of boots. Uh, yeah. But let's talk about Jingo for a bit because. Jingo is one of my favorite of the Night Watch books, and it's interesting because it's. I, I wonder where it fell in. Not, not to get us under the, the the tangent of it, but it's the first time that I wanted to look at a map, and and when googling for maps, I was frustrated because you said there aren't that yeah. many, um, because I wanted to know where Ankh Morpork was in regard to this other country called Clatch, yes. and uh, because they wind up having almost a war with it and mm-hmm. and the book is all about this and it is very clearly a commentary on the wars that is happening at that point in Iraq and the generalized wars in the Middle East yes. and the overall attitude of white people towards Arabs and Muslims and and not that those two things are the same but, but it's it, about Islamophobia it's about Arab you know uh Arabophobia it's about the fear of difference and it's about fighting a war over a resource right uh, so Jingo, the um, there's a circle C. Ankh-Morpork is on one side, Clatch is on the other side, and there's a C that they that mm-hmm. separates them. And an uh, an island raises up in the middle, and then everybody decides to fight over it. It's um, it, the the plot of the book is basically uh, everybody goes mad for the military, but Ankh-Morpork doesn't have a military. They're an economic superpower. They're not a military superpower. Or they're right. superpower. They're just economic power. They, 
And so they they have private regiment raising, and then private regiments go off to Clatch to try to wage war against them. And the the book has simultaneously a great ending and a like. Uh, so he arrests both armies. He says he says it's got to be illegal to start a war. And they they're like it actually isn't. And he goes, that's no, that can't be true. Let, mm-hmm. Let's figure it out. Like if a war is wrong. It should be illegal. There should be a law bigger than a country's law, which yeah. is a definitely a commentary on how uh, oversized powers, right, in the world will be will just ignore the laws of everywhere else, yeah. right? Which was actively happening at the time. Yeah, like a very lot of much the actions so. that were taken at the time he wrote it, because this was when we were no longer officially at war with Iraq, but we were bombing them from time to time, and certainly things were happening in Palestine and other parts of the Middle East. And the international community, a lot of it was outraged. And there were people yeah. saying, like, oh, if only we could arrest Tony Blair and Bill Clinton mm-hmm. for international war crimes. And, and of course, like, you can't do that. The UN, they're, yeah. they're too big for it. And, yeah, this book is very much a commentary on yeah. that. Yeah. And it's very um, funny because historically, that wasn't a big deal. It, like, yeah. pre-World War One, you started a war and you took some territory and that was considered legit. Mm-hmm. And so it's, a, it's this weird, like, we're projecting our own, like, if you look back – the Crimean War was like that. Like, somebody wanted yeah. to take the Crimea. And they did. And they kept it. What the hell? We wanted to take Texas in the Southwest, so we went yeah. to war. Yeah, exactly. That's... It just it, it, These were just things that happened internationally up, up pre-20th century. And yeah. so it's this, like, projection of our philosophy on national borders into a fantasy world, which is a reflection of pre-20th century technology. So it's yeah. just a... It, it, it's just really... Really interesting to think about it, and it's again interesting how how he does the, the the allegories because, like for example, the people from Clatch are very clearly meant to be, like I said, representatives of Arab countries. Yep. Uh, down to a lot of like the insults that we like, they all wear yes. turbans on their head, it, and the the yeah. ethnic slurs that the people there are very. I'm not going to say them, but are very similar to the yeah. the you know about the thing they have on their head, and there's some great. Again, where Carrot or some of the other character, Carrot is doing it from a place of innocence. Vimes is doing it from a place of actively wanting to mock people. But what Vimes will do is he will pretend that. And, and so they'll be like, oh, well, so what's wrong with the people of Clatch? Oh, they do this thing. And he'll be like, hmm, don't we do this thing? Well, well no, 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 but it's different because this. Well, but don't we do that? And it's really showing just the incredible hypocrisy of all of this. Yeah. Um, similarly, one of the things, as you said, one of the things that happens in the book is because the city doesn't have a military, they go back to this ancient time idea where all of the noble houses have to raise their own military. Yep. And Vimes is just aghast. Vimes is often kind of the man outside because, like you said, he grew up in the city. He should have all the same prejudices and ideas. He just doesn't. And so he's watching with horrors, you know, the butler that works for the, his wife, who's very rich, technically works for him. That's a whole other set of stories. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, he's like, well, I want to go join the military. He's like, why? It's like, well, they, they all look so smart in their, their pretty uniforms and things like this. And yeah, it just, the, the red and white uniform with the gold frogging, right? Yeah. It's, it's all such beautiful satire of everything about militarism, about nationalism, about jingoism, quite literally. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, I looked is it, it kind of made me think about the origin of the word jingo. And it's from... Uh, uh, I think it's the Crimean War. I'm not sure. It might be earlier. Uh, but a song that was sung by people who had 
uh, kind of like come, you know, we're in one of those private armies. And the line of the song is, we don't want to fight, but by Jingo, if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money too. And so it's very much a like, look at how yeah. cool and awesome our country is. We wouldn't want to fight, but of course, if we do, we'll win because we're best, which is the very definition of Jingoism. Yeah. And they... It, they, it's definitely, again, from a British lens, right? From a yeah. colonialism lens of, you know, we're going to show Johnny Clatchy in what for we're going to, you know, he'll run at the sight of the cold steel in our hands. And then yeah. the, the, the question that gets asked is, the Clatchians are an older empire, right? And they're also, like, they've been pacifying their own external, they're an actual empire. They've been militarily pacifying their their different sections, their diverse multi-ethnic empire. They've been doing this for a long time. What do you yeah. think that they're like, what, you think that they're going to be threatened by our, our, you know, untrained regiments? What, what's your plan here? Yeah. It's, it's just beautifully done. And it, it points out it's, it's not a, I think it's easy in this kind of case to be like, Oh, so I'm going to critique our side, critique our side, but making our side bad and their side good. And like, no, there's, as you said, he, he rests both armies. And the, the resource part of it is, uh, as you said, they're, they're on the opposite end of the Circle C. One of the things that happens is that every thousand years or so, this island rises up from out of the sea. And it turns mm -hmm. out that it, it's kind of an Atlantis. It sunk long ago, but it's under this bubble of gas that every now and then expands enough that it rises up. And it's – so all of a sudden, both of these groups want this resource and they're claiming that it belongs to them. Mm -hmm. It's very much supposed to be a stand-in for oil. Yes. Uh, or the other resources people fight over. But in this case, again, the parody of it, it's completely useless because we all know it's going to sink back into the ocean pretty soon. But it doesn't matter. They still want to fight over it. Well, but they, and they don't necessarily know that it's going to sink into the ocean. That's the other thing is right. uh, Vetinari figures that out. And he's like, ah, cool. We should let them have it. We should get concessions from them, make a deal. And yeah. then they pay us, we walk away, and then it goes into the ocean and we win. Like, yeah. th that's his that's his grand plan, right? Um, and everybody else is like, no, 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 we can win a war. And it's also about the waste of war because they're going to waste more resources on this war than that island could ever give them. Yeah. Right? And it's it, like a lot of the time war is like that where you burn more resources than you gain by conquering people. Mm -hmm. Right? <clears throat> Very much so. Now, there's one last thing I do want to talk about <clears throat> and then we're going to have a, a Patreon section. But I want to say quickly, as part of the strike um, – uh, and you can listen to me talk about this more on the most recent Star Wars episode I put out with Riki Hayashi about uh, uh, the strike. But as part of the strike, one of the things I'm going to do is that 25% of what I take in from Patreon uh, is going to get donated to the fund that's being used to help the people on strike and help all the other people who are affected. Uh, so if you ever thought about joining the Patreon, this is a great time. Um, uh, I go into more of it again on that Star Wars podcast. Uh, and I'll write about it more in the Patreon. But if y'all want to think about it, it's a great thing to do. But of course, if that's not where you are economically or if it's not something you're into, that's of course fine too. Uh, but we will have a Patreon section where we're going to talk more about some of the other Discworld things. Uh, but here, let's finish up with I think what is I think probably my favorite part of the – in the satirical world making a very important point that libraries of economic economists have tried to write but I think Pratchett captures so perfectly, which is the Samuel Vimes theory of boots, which is that basically it is expensive to be poor. Can, can you explain what this means? Yeah. So the quote is, the reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, 
was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two, and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots Vimes always bought, and he wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where, we was, where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing that was, was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that'd still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. Yeah. Um, and, 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 yeah. It is a theory that makes so much sense. It's the idea that when you don't have disposable income and you're spending literally paycheck to paycheck, that means you can't afford better things. And so, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, not even that. Just look at at the cost of the same goods for a poor person or a rich person. If you have money to start and you want to rent a place or own a place, say that your place would have $1,000 of mortgage a month, right, that you want to rent, just for a nice round made-up number. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm renting from somebody, they still pay that $1,000 mortgage, and then I pay them, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks on top, call it $1,200, in order to rent the same space that they're paying $1,000 mm-hmm. a month for for mortgage. It costs me more because I didn't have the money up front for a down payment on the house. Yep. Plus, they're building up equity in a way that you're not. Exactly. And so it costs more to it to be poor. It just there's a hundred different ways, like the boots thing of buying cheap repeatedly. Like, yeah. To to me, my favorite example is healthcare uh, in Mm -hmm. this country, because if you can afford good insurance, then yeah, there's an insurance cost. But a, if disaster strikes, you're you're covered. But more importantly, disaster's a lot less likely to strike because you can afford to go get regular checkups. Right. You know. Whereas if you're the some person who is only going to the emergency room when you're literally like, you know, on death's door or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Often it's because you have, you know, a cancer in your jaw that if you'd been able to see a dentist regularly would have been prevented. Exactly. Or any of the other kind of thing. There are so many things where if you can pay more money up front, it's going to protect your health. It's going to protect your house. It's going to protect your car. All these things where the system's been set up that it is incredibly expensive to be poor, which means that it's almost impossible to, you know, oh, just save enough to buy a house or save enough to buy a new right. suit so you can get a better job or save enough to go to school or any of these things. And, and this isn't to say that people don't do that because this this is a thing. People save up for right. these things. But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a barrier. There's a gradient. It's harder to get out of it than it is to stay out of it. Right. Would be would be my other half. If you start with if if you start somebody ahead, right, if they have enough money for a down payment on a house, that means that that two hundred dollars a month, they get to not just build equity, but bank up to do other things. And then so at the end of that, they both have the equity they built in the house and the money that they've saved from that intervening time. And they might have to pay for big house repairs. But here's the secret. They had to do with that anyways. All right. of the things that, that that you have to do in these situations, the situations where you're buying repeatedly crappy shoes right instead of one really good pair of shoes that'll last you for a longer time it like all of these choices that you that you have to make make it it's a trap right it's it's a steep gradient to get out but once you're out it's really hard to slide back down it's one directional yeah and And yeah 
And I think one of the other points to it is, and this is very clearly stated, Vimes develops this theory because of the time he spends with the rich. And this is in part because through a hilarious sequence of events, it's detailed in one of the earliest novels, he winds up marrying Lady Sybil, who is the richest woman in the city. And so he spends all this time with the rich. And, And so part of what he's saying is this theory wouldn't have occurred to him until he spent time with them. And part of where I go with that is, and, and again, I, what I'm about to say I think can be used in a very kind of disparaging, oh, the poor are stupid way. That's not what I'm saying in the slightest. Yeah. But I think it's important to understand that if you have lived in a situation where no one in your family for generations has been able to do these kind of things, just the idea of maybe I should save money to do something in the future is ridiculous. Because well, it, it's just it, – it's not something that anyone you know has ever been able to do. So maybe the, the chance that you start to get a little bit more wealth and you have the chance to do so, the idea of it probably is hard to even imagine. Well, and oftentimes you have to pay your way out of a problem, right? You'll, right. you'll have saved up some amount of money. You know, you'll, you'll manage to somehow through some miracle of banked a thousand bucks that's sitting when you're poor. Yeah. And then, you know, your car breaks down and you have to pay for it. Well, that wipes yeah. you out. And so the idea is saving isn't saving isn't a thing that lets you get out, right? Because any time that you save up money, it'll get wiped out by something, and you know it because you can't right. save enough to get ahead. And you so you can't save enough to get ahead, and you can't get you can't you don't have enough to get insurance against those things that could go wrong. Right. And so, like, if you if you have if you have a nest egg, if you have you know ten thousand dollars banked. You can ride out all of these problems, right? You can take yeah. a dip on the money and save back up to your to your banked amount. And I, I'm picking arbitrary, entirely round numbers for all of these. Like the numbers yeah. are different for different places at different times for different people. I'm I'm literally just picking nice round numbers because I know that that's just easier yeah. to parse in your head. But and so like like it sound it, to, to some people they'd be like ten thousand dollars is a whole lot of money to have banked, and other people would be like, oh that's like that's nothing. Like I, I I'll have a disaster that w- makes me buy a car, and a I'd be like, right, but the, the the line still holds that if you are if you're stuck in the poverty trap, especially, it's very very difficult to to save your way out, to grind your way out, to buy your way out, yeah. uh, and it's a mentality too because you think poor, um, because you, like your planning horizon is so short. If you had a thousand bucks when you're poor, you'll buy yourself a bunch of good things now because it won't last anyways. It'll get wiped right. out. In a, It'll get wiped out the next time something happens regardless. Yeah, exactly. And again, that's not always true, but it certainly can be true quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, we're, we're saying the same thing there. I agree. Um, yep. And I guess I just kind of – I would wrap up by just saying I think that's, again, it, it's what is so brilliant about these books because you and I took this one paragraph. Like all the stuff we just said, that's not in the books. And, yeah. you know, I'm someone who's – like I'm, I'm not – I don't think Pratchett means to be, and I'm certainly not saying that the result is to be anti-academic. Like, I think Pratchett yeah. isn't trying to say, oh, all of economics is stupid because I'm going to make it so simple. Just like he's not saying all of moral thought isn't stupid because w- listen to what grandma said. But he's also saying that a lot of that stuff is very inaccessible. And it's like you could read Das Kapital or you could read two paragraphs from Vimes and at least get the basic idea. And- you know, you could read – uh, Martin Buber, or you could read this one line from from Grandma Weather, whatever, and Weatherwax, and and I just love that. I love that he's he's able to 
take these incredibly complex ideas and make them much smaller and make them much simpler. Right. And he's using narrative as a hook because that's something that, like, we think in terms of other people, right? That's how – that's kind of how people operate. And so if you don't have a hook or a structure or a way to pass things through, it's really abstract. And, like – there's definitely, like you say, a space for really intellectual discussions about things where you are going to sit down and figure out the exact, like, what is the curve where a renter and a you know, and a buyer, you know, intersect and what can you do with mm-hmm. saving to get there and whatever. And, like, what are the monetary theories that get you there? And you can also just say, it's kind of unfair and we should try to fix stuff. Yeah. Uh, like, just here's the vibe. And he's trying to get you – he's trying to hook you and get you to the vibe of, like, being angry that it sucks to be poor, right? Yeah. And I think that's the real thing is that he's not trying to tell you how to fix it. He's trying yeah. to get you angry about how things are. Yes. Because I think – and I think in – and that's in many ways – oh, you know, I didn't even thought about this. But here, Vimes and Carrot are the two opposite ends of his spectrum because mm-hmm. Vimes says, I think you're all – I see what you're all doing. I think you're all idiots and I think it's all terrible. Carrot it says – I'm going to ignore or be ignorant of everything you're doing because I think you should just be doing the right thing. Yes. But both of them are fundamentally rejecting all the things that everybody else just takes for granted as, well, we just go to war because that's what we do. Well, we just have these systems because that's what we do. Both of them are fundamentally saying, I see the status quo is wrong. Yep. And that's the the thing with these books is that they they reject the status quo. They they want there to be change and they they think that sometimes you got to get it and shake things up and sometimes you gotta you gotta get your hands dirty and fix stuff and it's they're i don't know they're just it's just good yeah they're just good and they say that you can make a difference that's the other thing that a narrative can can really hook you on is that a person can make a difference Right. Yeah. Sometimes stuff is big and complicated and hard. The book Night Watch, they, there's a revolution, and one person can't make a difference except when one person absolutely can. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, that's yeah, that's the it, the big theme. It's wonderful. All right. Well, um, as I said, we'll talk more about Discworld and kind of give some previews of stuff we're going to talk about in the future uh, in the Patreon section. Um, Please do uh, check that out and give some thought to signing up. You also get ad-free content. And again, you're helping to support me and help support the Strikers. Uh, although if you also want to donate directly to the Strike Funds, that's an awesome thing to do as well. But for everybody else who is checking out now, uh, Rob, where can they find more of you? Uh, so I I do stuff here. Um, I do stuff with Good Luck High Five. I've actually gotten onto Mastodon recently, um, which is because I didn't want to be on the bird site. So I am at kind.social. So if you mm-hmm. want to sign up on Mastodon stuff, um, I'm at Robert on kind.social. Um, Sweet. And so you should be able to find me there. I haven't actually posted anything, but okay. I follow a bunch cool. of loading ready run people and stuff. So Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still not quite sure where I should go because people who are leaving the bird app are going in like four or five different directions. And I, yep. I, I just I can't bring myself to create five profiles. But Mastodon, I think, is definitely one, one thing. And I, I may well head over there in a bit. Uh, but meanwhile, you can still find me on the Bird app, you, uh, Twitter. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, just if you search for the Ethical Panda or Ethical Panda. But mostly, the best way to do it is just uh, look in the show notes or go to our website, theethicalpanda.com. You'll find this podcast. You'll find my Star Wars podcast. Uh, with both of those podcasts, uh, as I said, throughout the strike or until we get different information from the unions, I'm not going to be making any media about 
the, the from the struck companies, which are the, the companies that for whom the, the set that makes the contracts with SAG and uh, SAG Astra and the Writers Union, the Actors Union, and the Writers Union. Uh, but one thing I'm discovering as I think about it is there's a huge amount of media that's not that. I mean, there's books and there's video games, and there's comic books. I'm definitely going to be talking about all of that. I'm going to make an episode on professional wrestling pretty soon. But also, there's an awful lot of TV and movies that are made completely outside that system. You know, BBC and all the stuff coming out of England, uh, anime, uh, Bollywood and the other uh, Indian subcontinent stuff, lots of stuff from Europe, all over mm -hmm. the world. People make movies and TV shows that have nothing to do with the SAG system. And let's give some of those uh, some attention. So I'll definitely be looking at some of that. Uh, you can sign up for both of those podcasts. But most importantly, give us feedback. What do you love about Discworld? Have you never heard of it now, but now you're intrigued? Uh, would love to hear your thoughts uh, either now or maybe you go back and read one of these books and, and then give us feedback. Love to hear it. Love to talk about it. We've got a feedback episode coming up soon. Uh, I believe it's going to be in two weeks. And then I'm going to, um, because I've just gotten it all that back up, I'm going to do a feedback episode. And then I'm going to get back into making sure that at least every other episode we do feedback. I know I've been terrible about it. Uh, I'm going to make it make it better. So on behalf of myself, Rob, thank you all so much for being a great audience. We have spoken. All right. Now for our Patreons. Um, Rob, for someone who hasn't ever gotten their hands around Discworld, has not started it yet, but is thinking that this is a good time to do so, and I think the Night Watch books, they were my entrance. I think that's a great place to start, but what are some others? Give us two or three other entry points into the Discworld. So if you want a standalone book, which doesn't really connect to anything else, uh, it like mentions some other stuff, um, Small Gods is funny insightful does a bunch of stuff and you don't need to feel like you're missing anything it doesn't start mm -hmm. from anywhere it doesn't go to anywhere it's just a great standalone book that happens to be set in the world um the 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 watch as an arc is incredibly good if you want what i would argue the best piece of like accessible writing that terry pratchett's done in Discworld, it might be hogfather mm -hmm. which is technically the middle of the death arc but it's the, the high-level plot is that, you know, um, the the Santa analog, the Hogfather, has vanished, and Death is currently doing Santa's rounds for him. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, that's the very end. Uh, so that means Death isn't doing his job, which means Death's granddaughter is getting hauled in to figure out what the hell is going on with everything. And Death is a fascinating character, and it's a very yes. different image of Death. That, like I think a lot of great works, including actually... Um, I kind of actually wonder if Neil Gaiman, who created a beautiful image of death in the Sandman works, I, I kind of wonder if there's any recording or dialogue of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett talking about their visions of death, because they both create very entertaining death characters who are completely different. Yes. Uh, the, Terry Pratchett's death is – Terry Pratchett's take on death is death is a force, but in the disc, in the Discworld universe, forces are – like they are molded by humanity. The way that people mm -hmm. see them is the way that things are, and that creates the gods and that creates these, these personifications, war, death, famine, pestilence, right? The four horsemen are personifications of the things that humankind has projected out into the world, and right. death is – the, the line is when you when you're shaped like a human you start to think human mm -hmm. and he's but he's bad at it he takes yeah. everything literally and uh, he adopts a he adopts a daughter in Mort and then he gets an apprentice and then the apprentice marries his adopted daughter and they have a granddaughter who inherits the powers of death she lives a little bit outside time 
And Susan Stohelet is so like again his his core characters, you know, Vimes, Granny Weatherwax, Susan are angry. They're angry a yeah. lot. Su- Susan is uh, Susan is deeply unhappy that she keeps getting dragged into this death crap. Uh, but the Hogfather is it's just a great story, and it has. I think that one of the most impactful things he's written, which is the line uh, that we teach children to believe the little lies, like, you know, the hog father, because mm-hmm. they have to get prepared to believe the big lies. And she goes, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, mercy, justice, those kinds of things. Uh, and she goes, so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And she goes, wait, no, what, what do you mean? Those aren't lies. And he goes, grind the universe down to its, do you, we tell you, me if you find a, a molecule of mercy an atom of justice and she go, it, it like they aren't they aren't real like they're they're what humans believe and she goes yeah but you have to believe them or else what's the point and he goes that's my point exactly mm, yeah. and it is it is phenomenal the the hogfather that that speech in hogfather is it, it like it's a punch every time yeah and uh, it's just a great it's a great hook to get because then you'll go backwards and be like, where did Susan come from? And you'll read some other books back and then you'll yeah. go, well, where is Susan? And you'll read soul music, which is just what happens when you get music in your soul, mm. uh, like to replace your soul. Um, yeah. And if something has a soul, it can be killed. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's just one of the great things. I think so. Those are two great entry points. And the other thing I'd say, though, is also if neither one of those grabs you like. Think about the genre of fantasy that you're kind of most into. It may well be there. Like yeah. the the Grandma Weatherwax, she comes from the Witches series of books. If you really yep. love w- stories about witches, start with there. Yeah, the um, Granny comes from those. There's um, – if you want something super lighter, there are a handful of young adult ones. Um, mm-hmm. Wintersmith, Hatful – or what is it? The first one is Hatful of Sky. Hatful of Sky, Wintersmith, I Shall Wear Midnight, and The Shepherd's Crown are like – if you want something like targeted to a younger audience, this doesn't yep. necessarily mean they're they're actually that much easier than a normal Discworld book, but they're targeted towards towards young adults. Um, they're very good, and uh, there's there's send ups of different things. Sometimes he'll write pastiches of other pieces of work. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a Phantom of the Opera thing in the Witch's Ark. Um, the that is uh, not Carpe Jugulum, the one before Masquerade. Is, mm-hmm. is is a mockery of Phantom of the Opera. There's a there's a Faust send up, which is actually called Faust, and that's crossed out, and Eric is written in instead. Oh, I uh, love that. He's a, he's very transparent about that. This is he's uh, like he read Faust, and he's like, I can do that, but funny. Yeah. Um, and so there's uh, there's these there's these direct pastiches of other things, uh, and he gets away from that later, but not entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the there's just a, there's a whole bunch of like I I think that that the that the three best entries are are the guards the the death and the and the just standalone um so, uh, um small gods yeah but there's there's a lot of places where you can get into it because like you said they're they're mostly stand they stand alone you could yeah. also read going postal which doesn't technically require you to know anything going postal and making money are are two books that follow Moist von Lipvig who's mm-hmm. a con artist. Um, he's placed and, in front of the po- in charge of the postal service. Uh, and just so people can find them, what are the, the the first book of the three series we've talked about? So, what's the first work for guards? The first work for death, and the first work for the witches? Uh, so, the first work uh, the first work 
for the witches books is Weird Sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, or sorry, that's not true. Equal Rights is technically first, um, okay. but the Equal Rights is just Granny Weatherwax, um, and then Weird Sisters is about the there's a coven that she's a part of. Right. Um, so you could read either one of those as the, your first one, and it's fine. Um, the the guards books start with guards guards, which has two exclamation marks in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, it really kicks off with men at arms. Like yeah. he never like a lot of these he writes one book to stand alone, and then like it becomes really interesting in the second book mm-hmm. when he expands on it. Um, and the uh, the death books technically start with um, with Reaper Man. Uh, no, sorry, that's not true. Mort is the first death book. Um, mm-hmm. But Reaper Man, Reaper Man is gorgeous. Reaper Man has, if he cut the B plot from Reaper Man, it would probably be the best book that he wrote. Nice. Um, it like, and that's like I like Night Watch and Thief of Time are my two favorites by him. Reaper Man, like, what hope has the Harvest if not for the care of the Reaper Man? What mm-hmm. what do people have to hope for except that death actually cares about them at the end and like cares about doing a good job harvesting their yeah. souls? And uh, the B plot's kind of shaky. It's not one of his best. Mm-hmm. Okay. But um, Mort is technically the first death book. Uh, so, the, but a lot of these because he because he didn't plan to write this big overarching thing that mm-hmm. it, like he would write up just a standalone book that was interesting set in the world, uh, and then it doesn't really matter that much. Like yeah, and like I, yeah, I think that's one of the best parts because like I said I I started with. Um, I don't remember which book I started in the Night Watch, but it wasn't either Garth Guards or the Night Watch. I started kind of in the middle, and it was completely accessible. I think yeah. if you're the kind of person who wants to read things from the beginning to the end, I think you do gain more in some ways. But really, just if you got a friend who's got any Night Watch, any Discworld book, ask to borrow it, and it can be a good way yeah. in. So, yeah. um, have myself, Rob, uh, Rob, any of the last comments you want to make before we wrap, before we finish this off entirely? Um. Treat people as people. People treat are people. people, people. If, yeah, treat people as people. Yeah. Like, that's uh, treat people as people. It's it's just a fundamentally good idea. And and however expansive your idea of people is, and you know, for some it's it's some animals, for some it's all animals, and I think that's that's awesome too. You know, uh, but don't when you interact with other living things, don't just see them only in terms of the the value they can bring into their lives. Mm-hmm. Whatever, however you treat, whatever that is. So, myself and uh, Rob, thank you so much to our patrons. You know what really makes this possible? Thank you so much. We have spoken. Run!